I love episodes like we just heard in the gospel where Jesus acts like nothing so much as a petulant teenager. The Pharisees ask him a very serious, even intimidating question, and he gives a smart aleck response and says, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question either. Then after that rebellious remark, he has the gall to tell a parable illustrating the opposite of rebellion, doing the Father's will. In other words, lecturing the Pharisees on the very virtue that they prize the most, obedience. Of course, as he often does, Jesus turns that idea of obedience on its head and stays within his adolescent mood by saying that it's the criminals and the scum of society who are really doing God's will, not the upstanding and righteous Pharisees. It's so much like a teenager saying, whatever, Mom, my friend that smokes pot and has tattoos is a much better person than you and Dad are. Now, in Jesus' defense, he does back up his strong words with strong actions, and he's just been healing many people in the temple, which is why he draws this question from the Pharisees, under what authority are you doing that? So if your teenagers pull a petulant attitude with you, I guess you could try asking them how many lepers they've cured recently. (laughs) It probably won't work, but you could try that. So anyway, I love these stories where Jesus acts like that because I always fantasize that I could do that. I'm a rebel. I'm not easily intimidated. But the way that I see myself on the inside is not often how I act. And when faced with people in power, I tend to be pretty much just clueless. When I met with the bishop for the first time to discuss my process in ordination, it was me, my two priests, deans of the cathedral, plus my junior warden, who is a doctor and professor. And I realized I was the only person in the room with no title before my name. I don't know if I've ever been in a situation where I've been so keenly aware of being the least significant person present, which would not have been a problem except that the entire topic of the meeting was about me. So after speaking to those illustrious people for a bit, the bishop turned to me and said, so who is the first person that told you you should be a priest? And I said, um... I want to say, God. (laughs) Fortunately, the bishop also laughed and said, that's good to have God's approval for these things. But when you go before the commission on ministry, you might want to come up with a bit more tangible answer. So back to the Gospels. As Episcopalians, we often live in that tension that Jesus is pointing out of being free-thinking rebels on the one hand, as, for example, when we ignored critics and said, in our prayer, in our study of Scripture, in our discernment of how God is moving in the world, we believe that God is calling us to honor the vocations of gay priests and bishops and to work towards marriage equality. We think that's the right thing to do. And on the other hand, we're also a church firmly attached to thousands of years of church tradition, and seemingly archaic rules 
that people in other denominations don't understand and think are unreasonable. Like, for example, you can't be an ordained minister in our church unless hands have been laid on you by a bishop in apostolic succession, which means a line of bishops going all the way back to St. Peter. That is profound obedience to affirm the authority of church fathers long dead and church councils long past. No matter how much we change with the times, there is a core of our faith that remains unshakably rooted in ancient tradition and practice. So keeping those two things in tension, the pull towards rebellion and newness on the one hand and obedience to tradition on the other, how do we know when we're choosing properly which side of that equation to favor in any given situation? Jesus' answer is subtle. You may miss it. He tells the Pharisees, John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. Meaning, John was turning around the lives of sinners. John was getting results. People were streaming in from all over Galilee to be a part of John's ministry. But you were so attached to having the right answers about everything that you failed to see that the God that you profess with your lips is doing a new thing in the world. And now this new thing is right under your noses, and you're still failing to see it. I, too, think God is doing a new thing in the world. And in keeping with our tradition, I think this new thing is very ancient. You may remember I went to Fuller Seminary, an evangelical school. I'm only one of at least five priests, plus two more that I know of who are still in the process of ordination, who've come through Fuller in the past few years. I'm the oldest of the bunch and the only one who was already Episcopalian beforehand. The rest are all young people who converted to the Episcopal Church because they became convinced that traditional worship is the future of the church. And it wasn't just those who became priests. Several times, students would come up to me when they found out I was Episcopalian and ask for my advice on traditions, which we do all the time, that they were being taught in their liturgics classes. And in fact, one of those priests that I mentioned before is working on her doctorate in liturgics at Fuller, again, an evangelical seminary. So these students were learning about these things, but they had no practical experience with them. So one student came up to me with a BCP, a Book of Common Prayer, just like you have in your pews, that he had checked out of the library. And he said to me, I was thinking of using this to organize the worship at a men's retreat that I'm running. Do you think you could show me how to use it? And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Boy, have you come to the right person. He was like, whoa, back up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was very excited. And we sat down and worked out his devotionals for the retreat. And I could not have been more proud to be part of a denomination that was able to offer that as a resource for a fellow student and a brother in ministry. 
This revival of traditional worship is current, but it's not new. Our Anglican faith has always turned back towards ancient forms when in need of renewal. The 79 prayer book refocused our worship life and our theology around the sacrament of baptism, as the first Christians had done. The mid-19th century Oxford movement, which started in England and quickly spread here, recentered worship around the practice of weekly Eucharist, and that's why we're having Eucharist this morning, thanks to them. Otherwise, it would be a service of morning prayers, which was the practice for many years. And all the way back to Thomas Cranmer, the chief architect of what it means to be Anglican, who put together our first prayer book in 1549 based in part on ancient practices of the Eastern Church from a thousand years before. Returning to our ancient roots to keep us grounded as we move forward into the future is in our Anglican DNA. And that DNA informs the base of our theology which is the lesson that Jesus is sneaking in here under his snarky attitude, which is it's not about getting the right answer. That's the Pharisee's approach to religion. It's about what we do. We don't have a litmus test for belief. We say, if you want to know what it means to be an Episcopalian, come and worship with us. And if you say, well, I don't, I don't believe this thing or that thing in the Bible... Or, I don't, I don't know if I think Jesus is really divine. We say, great. There is a spot at the altar rail with your name on it. Come, share the bread and wine made holy with the rest of us. What we do by worshiping and being in community together is more important than saying the right thing. And if you're like me, I find gospel hope in that because I know I don't often say the right thing. But I hope that where my words have failed, my actions have shown my support and love for what is just and true and good. There is a hunger out there for the unique expression of Christianity that our particular faith offers. I was impressed to learn that when our choir sang their final evensong with communion at St. Paul's Cathedral, in London, that there were about 5,000 people there listening, receiving the sacrament. And no matter how many of them were tourists looking around at the space, they were also looking for and participating in something that was different and set apart from the rest of their lives. Something that was ancient and mysterious and beautiful. Here at St. Wilfred's, we have five adults right now undertaking instruction in the faith of our church, perhaps for confirmation. I don't know. I don't want to pressure them. But whether they're confirmed or not, they have a hunger and a desire to learn about our faith and the practices that we share. And their names are in the bulletin, so I hope you'll consider adding them to your prayers if you haven't already. God is doing a new thing in the world. And God is getting results. All we have to do is put aside the Pharisee within us that is so concerned with getting the right answer that we fail to see the beautiful, profound, mysterious, 
and ancient thing that God is doing right in front of us in this very space, in this very moment. To him, to Christ, and to the Holy Spirit, be all glory, laud, and honor now and forever. Amen.